For those of you who are new, my name is Chris. Uh, I am one of the pastors here as well. Welcome uh, to First City. Uh, glad you could join us as we begin this uh, series on the Reformation. Um, and as Paul mentioned, uh, we're, we're going to take a look at why the Reformation matters. So on October 31st, 1517, a young 33-year-old monk in a backwater German town wants to have a discussion with the church wants to debate some certain points of theology that he is taking issues with. And so he writes out his 95 theses. These are sort of his debate points. And he goes to the church door, which was kind of like the the town bulletin board where all the announcements and everything that was kind of going on uh, in the town is where you would stick something. And so he goes to the door, pounds these 95 theses on on the door, wanting to have a discussion, wanting to raise some points of contention, And all he was after was a discussion. But what it ended up igniting was a reformation and a revolution that 500 years later we still feel the impact of. Now we we could kind of look at it at a high level and, and consider a lot of the theological and historical and cultural and philosophical uh after effects that we face today and we feel today, especially those of us that live in the West. But I want to I shrink it down just a little bit for us this morning um, as we consider some important aspects of the Reformation. And here's how I want to do that. All of us have a conception of God. So if you claim faith, I don't, I don't care what type of faith you claim, what, what particular religion or denomination, but if you claim faith in God, you have some kind of conception of Him. You have some sort of notion of what He is like. And with that, what is right and wrong. And you have some sort of notion that if, if you break that standard of right and wrong, what comes after that, whether it be punishment or a way to relieve guilt and atone for what you have done wrong. You also have a conception about what is wrong with the world. What, what's going on in our world? Why is it the way that it is? And you have some conception about what God is either doing or going to do or what you need to do to fix the problem. So you have a conception of the problem and you also have some sort of conception of the solution. Now, it might not be razor sharp and you might not necessarily know all of the answers, but there's something there. For those of you that wouldn't profess faith in God, maybe you would claim more agnostic or atheist. The same thing is true for you. You have some sort of conception of God. You say, oh, I don't think he exists, or I don't know if he exists. You have some conception of right or wrong. There's some line, there's some standard that you have decided. And you have some notion that if you cross that line, or if someone else crosses that line, what punishment follows, or how they atone for that mistake and find forgiveness. You have some, some conception of what's wrong with us, what's wrong with our world, and how we fix it. So you can't escape any of those questions. They're they're sort of part and parcel of being a human being living in this world. And why the Reformation matters because it was a movement that sought to answer those questions in a very profound way. It sought to find the answers to those questions, not just because it wanted to more align with a particular viewpoint, but it wanted to find what is truth. What is really the nature of who we are and what is wrong with our world and how do we find salvation? And so those, the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, were after a set of beliefs that they believed not only were the truth, but also brought life and freedom 
to those who would believe. And so they were, they were after freedom for those who were living under the fist of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And so those questions that they were facing, the things that they were seeking to answer, they're still things that we face today. And so the Reformation has much to say to us. And, and the things that they wrestled through and the, the issues that they did sort of went to war over, both metaphorically and literally, are things that matter to us and are, have profound significance for us today. And so this morning, I want to make a couple things clear. One, this isn't a Catholic bashing series. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and hammer the Roman Catholic Church and point out all, how all the, it's horrible and bad and wicked and all these things. What, what, what I want to do, though, is I want to raise some important questions and see what Scripture has to say and, and point out why we are Protestant, why we believe that script, what Scripture teaches and what we hold is more in line with what Jesus and the apostles taught than what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. But it's not in order to bash it. It's in order to say, hey, this is truth. We want you to know truth. We want you to know Jesus. Look, there are wonderful people in the Catholic Church that are Christians. I sat down and became friends with a Roman Catholic priest, and the conversations that I had with him were as encouraging as any I've had with a Protestant pastor. I mean, that dude knows Jesus. So this is not about bashing one particular sect of Christianity. But I want us to align ourselves with the truth of the gospel. And I want us to understand why what Luther had a beef with was significant and serious. And we should care about these things too, because they speak something profound to us today. And I want us to be excited about what it means to be in the tradition of the Reformation, because at the, its heart, it was a renewal movement. It believed that the gospel renewed people and families and churches and nations. And we believe that same thing here at First City Church. That those convictions and that those beliefs come from a heritage that has been passed down for us for 500 years and even before that. But we stand in the tradition of the Reformation and that matters. And so I want us to be in touch with that and care about those things and celebrate those things and understand those things. So this morning, as we, we jump in, we have to start with sort of the, the ultimate issue that was at stake in the Reformation, and that is the doctrine of justification, or how one is right with God, how one understands what is broken in us, what is wrong with us, and then also what the solution is. And so three points that we're going to hang with this morning to kind of get inside this issue. We're going to look at the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of justification, or how I am right with God, and then what it means, transformation, what that means for us. So let's, let's consider this topic of sin. And to talk about sin, let me ask this question. What is wrong with us? <laughs> what is the problem in our world? If you hop on social media, or you turn on the TV, or you just spend time in your neighborhood, or at your job, you spend time in your family, you sit alone by yourself, you're going to be confronted with something is deeply wrong with us. Something is broken. Something is off. Our natural tendency isn't toward peace and harmony. It's conflict. It's pain. It is suffering. It's sin. You can't escape it. You can't run from it. As author Sue Grafton writes, beware the dark pool at the bottom of our hearts. 
In its icy black depths dwell strange and twisted creatures. It is best not to disturb. And so we can put labels on it. We can call things like anger, greed, selfishness, lust, abuse, deception, drunkenness, pride, racism, sexism, and on and on and on. We're good at labeling. We're good at identifying. But where do those things come from? What's the root cause? Why is the world the way it is? Why are we the way we are? Why does it seem that we are inundated with this sense of brokenness and sin and evil no matter where we go? And here's another way to think about it. How deep is the problem? I mean, we can all agree there's a problem, but how deep does that dark pool that Sue Grafton talks about, how deep does that go down? Well, the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation saw sin as an incredible problem. They identified it as, the, yes, this is an issue. This is a problem. We're not minimizing it. We have sinned against God and deserve judgment. And their belief that because of the sin of Adam, we are all born guilty and we're all corrupted by sin. It's something that is part of our human nature. But the question again, how are we corrupted? What did the Roman Catholic Church teach about the nature of our corruption, the nature of our sin? Well, to summarize I best I can, it's, it's hard to summarize uh, you know, thousands of volumes in teaching into like five sentences, so I'm going to try to do the best I can. But here is a summary. Sin has disordered and corrupted human nature so that now we are governed by what is considered our lower nature. So our passions, our desires, our emotions, our appetites, they now control us. See, when God created Adam and Eve, according to the Roman Catholic Church, they were governed by their reason and rationality. They believed in the truth. They saw the truth. They knew the truth because God had told them that. And that was the thing that they governed. And so they kind of kept their appetites and their desires and their emotions all kind of in control by their reason and rationality. But when they fell, when they rebelled against God, those desires, that lower nature, took control and took charge reason and rationality were damaged. They were weakened. And so they no longer were the thing that were controlling and and sort of ordering our world. And so the nature of corruption, according to the Roman Catholic Church, both in the medieval times and our time, is that sin has weakened us. It makes us sick, so to speak. We're weak. We're sick. Yes, the problem is significant, but here's an important point. We're not helpless. The problem is significant, but we're not helpless, meaning this. We can still sort of cooperate with God to restore and make things better. We, we can, God can sort of lay out, here, here are things that you now need to do, and you can kind of cooperate to make yourself better. And so we've been weakened. That's what the corruption is, is we've been weakened Sin has not left us incapable of pursuing salvation and righteousness if we rely on God's help and God's means. Now, this is remarkably similar to some of our modern notions of sin and and how we fix the problem. You're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who just says, ah, no, sin's not a problem. I mean, we're, we're, we're all basically good, right? I mean, there's probably been times in history where that's been easier to believe. I don't think that's too easy to believe right now. 
I think you would be hard-pressed to find somebody. I think that's one of, the, one of the benefits of sort of our cultural moment is that sin and depravity and brokenness and uh, oppression and division are kind of smushed in our face and we're like, yeah, we got a problem here. And so I don't think people are going to have a, you're not going to have a hard time convincing people that we have a problem. But it's more along the sides of, yeah, we're all weak. We're flawed. We're broken. We, we make mistakes. We're human, right? And, and because we're weak, if, if we give ourselves over to our passions, our emotions, or, or perhaps maybe we've been socially conditioned by our environment and how we were brought up, perhaps we're, we're ignorant and we lack understanding. And so the problem is, is this weakness and how our, our lives and our world have sort of how to shape that weakness. But we aren't helpless. You know, through education or maybe through some counseling and psychological healing, we can heal ourselves. We, we can get to a place where we get better and overcome some of those flaws in our thinking and our, our ignorance, or maybe learn how to control our desires and our emotions. And so we, we just need help. We need the right tools. We need something to come along and, and make us better and help us in our weakness. And the Reformation came against this idea in a very strong way. The Reformation was trying to recapture just how bad the situation was. So when, when Martin Luther and John Calvin and others that led the Reformation read the scriptures, they were like, hey, wait a minute. The problem seems to be a little bit bigger than what, how, we're being, how it's being described. The church seems to be giving this, this sense that we're sick. But if you go to Ephesians 2, it says we're dead. And so the Reformation was, was shining the spotlight on our condition, saying, hey, look, guys, things are actually worse than we believe. Our problem is much more serious than just weakness or spiritual sickness. As Ephesians 2, 1, and, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of the world. God's word tells us we aren't sick, we're dead. Big difference. Look, if you have stage three cancer or stage four cancer, that's a serious condition, right? Very, very serious. But there's still something you can do, hopefully, to make yourself better. There, there are treatments, there are actions that you can undertake to try to make yourself better. If you're dead, there's nothing you can do. You are completely at the mercy of someone else. And so what you need is not cure, but it's resurrection. And so for the Reformation to say, look, the problem isn't that we're spiritually sick, but that we're spiritually dead, was to raise the level on what, how bad things were in order to show just what the cure is. And so as Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us, we are spiritually dead. And because of that, Look at, look, look at what happens. Because we are spiritually dead, we follow the course of this world. That means we walk as this fallen, broken, sinful world walks. It's in our nature. That's just the natural course of what we do. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If our own sin wasn't bad enough, and if the world system wasn't bad enough, there's also the devil 
and his influence and how we're trapped and caught up in that as well. And, and notice what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He says, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's, it's not just our emotions and our appetites that are sinful. And this is the, one of the main problems with the Roman Catholic view of sin. It's also our minds. There's no such thing as perfect reason and rationality. It's also corrupted by sin. So our very way of logicking, if that, I don't think that's a word, but our way of reasoning is corrupted by sin. And so it's not just a matter of, hey, let me tell you about Jesus and show you the logic of why you should believe. Because our logic is corrupted by sin. It's our whole being that is corrupted by sin. And so we can't just rely on our reason. We cannot just rely. There, there is no ounce of us that we can marshal to pursue, to know, to believe, because we are spiritually dead. And so we need resurrection. We need the power of God. We are in no place to contribute to our salvation. The Roman Catholic view of sin says that sin weakened us and marred us, but it didn't leave us helpless. And what the Apostle Paul teaches and what the Reformer said is, no, we are helpless. Because we are spiritually dead, that means we are helpless. And so we can't bring anything to the table. And so the Reformation elevated the badness of our condition, not because it was morbid and pessimistic and full of stodgy old men who wanted to keep everyone in fear. It actually was, I mean, Luther was like in his 30s, Calvin was in his 30s, I mean, it was actually young people that were leading the Reformation. But it wasn't about this morbid pessimism, like everybody's bad and this is horrible and just kind of look at the ground and wallow in the dirt and, and just your sin. It was to say, hey, look, Sin is serious. But we have to rightly grasp the nature of our sin if we're going to see the nature of our salvation. If we're going to see the glory of Christ and how he accomplished every bit of it for us on our behalf. And so they raised the level of our badness in order for us to see just how glorious our Savior is. And so why does understanding justification, or understanding how bad our sin is important as we get into the doctrine of justification. Because how serious I see the problem is going to determine the nature of the cure. And so for the Roman Catholic Church, their view of justification, or how I am made right with God, naturally connected to their view of sin. So again, to try to summarize a, a whole bunch of teaching in just a few short sentences. In the fall, so when Adam and Eve fell into sin... They lost their original righteousness. And so for the rest of us, we, we are born without this righteousness. This is original sin. We are born into original sin. And then according to the Roman Catholic teaching, when someone is baptized, this forgives and cleanses their sin, their original sin. So that original stain that was there, just being born into the human race, that baptism forgives and cleanses all of that. And so this is called initial justification, according to the Catholic Catechism. However, there is still the issue of our actual sin and our actual righteousness. It's one thing to sort of just wipe away original sin, but what about you as a person and the sins you commit and your lack of righteousness in your life? 
Well, this is where justification is also a process. It's an ongoing process in which, with God's help, with God's grace, I become more righteous. And so through the sacraments and through the virtue of my good deeds, I become more and more righteous, ultimately getting to that status of where I'm acceptable before God and I inherit eternal life. And so being right with God is a process by which God says, okay, here you are in one place, not quite acceptable to me, but through the grace of the sacraments, through the virtue of your good works, I'm going to make you more and more and more and more acceptable to me so that your righteousness, yours, meets a certain standard and you can be in the presence of God. And so this is where some Protestants misunderstand the Roman Catholic Church because they think it's just purely works. Like Roman Catholics believe that you're just saved by works. Not exactly. Because they acknowledge you need God's help. You need the grace of God. This is where the sacraments come into play. And this is where things like confession and penance and the Eucharist and others come into play. God is infusing grace. He's giving us some grace to allow us to become righteous kind of like a spiritual steroid to make me strong. But here's here's the miss. Here's the miss. What the basis of justification becomes is my own righteousness in conjunction with God giving me the grace to become righteous. So I am doing things to become righteous with God's help, but it's still my righteousness. It's my work. I am being judged on how much I am cooperating, how much I am doing. Am I following in obedience? And so ultimately, my status is in my performance. You can, you can talk about God helping all you want, but at the end of the day, there is still my performance in there. My actions, how much I am relying on the sacraments. Am, am, am I being faithful to the sacraments? Am I being faithful in my virtue? And so we must not misunderstand, but we also must not miss that this is partly our work. And if God helps me, yes, but my justification and my salvation is still based in my performance, in my ability to achieve virtue, then I have to keep this up. I have to keep working. I have to keep performing. And I can also lose it. I can lose my status, which means I have to run back to one of the sacraments to receive that grace and receive justification once again. And so there's this sense where I'm never really sure whether I'm where I need to be. Assurance is not something that the Roman Catholic Church offers. And this is where purgatory plays in, because if you haven't gotten to the certain place when you die, you need to go to purgatory, which is partly punishment, where you are purified and ultimately go to heaven. But there's sort of this in-between state. And so there's this sense of, I never know really where I am, and I have to just keep going and keep going and keep going. And when Luther was confronting the Roman Catholic Church, here is one of the big things that he had a problem with. Indulgences. Meaning, You could pay the church money and the church would dispense grace to you or somebody that had died and was in purgatory. And so if I give money to the church, it's a way for me to be faithful to the church, then I'm going to get some grace that will help my justification and righteousness, help my standing with God. And what Luther saw in this was a complete perversion of the gospel. He says, where's faith? 
We're just trusting Christ. And what he, what he begins to, un, and, and why the Roman Catholic Church hit back so hard is because Luther pulled sort of the, the, the curtain back to show that all of these sacraments were a means of control. Like if I can control the dispensing, dispensing of grace, if I can sort of say, here's the things that you need to do in order to get grace to be right with God, and I control those things, then I can control you. I can control your faith. I can control how you see yourself. And so through the sacraments, through indulgences, the church became this massive organism that controlled people's lives. And it was good business to keep people in fear. And and here's the other piece of it too. If I can control you, then you need me. You need me to mediate you and God. Like, if I'm the only one that can dispense this grace that you need to become righteous, wow, then you need me. And, and this hierarchy between people and God that was built up by the Roman Catholic Church kept them dependent. There was no direct access to Jesus. And Luther saw into this because he was a part of it. And he wrestled with it himself. He recognized that Wow, there's no assurance here. There's no foundation here. There's a lot of guilt here, but I don't have much hope. And in many ways, this reflects how our world pursues salvation. How we think we are justified through our merit. If my good outweighs my bad. If I do enough good, however I determine what those good actions need to be and they outweigh whatever I determine the bad actions need to be, and, and if I want to get better and become a better person, well, man, I need the experts in education. I need the experts in you know, helping me grow healthy psychologically. So I have to pursue these people that have all this information and they become the one to mediate it for me. And so I, I find myself in this performance cycle dependent on other people who can control me. So, so this isn't just a religious thing. This isn't just, well, the church controls people. Religion controls people. Look, the secular world does the same thing. You're just, priests are different. They're called professors and psychologists and philosophers and politicians and, dare I say, entertainers. And so, human beings struggle with this no matter where you are. This is why the Reformation matters because it pulls back the curtain on these things and says, here is the truth of the gospel ready to set you free if you but put your faith in Christ. And so we turn back to Ephesians 2. The biblical gospel offers something better. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice the language here. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Nothing to do with our performance nothing to do with me trying to achieve a certain level of righteousness and a certain level of acceptance. God loves because of his mercy 
and his grace because he is a God of love. And and notice this too, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is talking about both where our status is now as children of God and where we will be one day with Christ. When does that happen? That's not a process. That happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment that you put your faith in Christ, you are accepted, you are loved, you are seated next to God in the heavenly places because of his grace. So we don't go through this process by which we're trying to more and more and more become righteous in hopes that God will accept us and we've done enough. Oh, it's been done for us in Jesus Christ. God isn't looking for us to try to prove our acceptance. He holds out forgiveness and acceptance as a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, if we contribute something to our salvation, then we have reason to boast. We have something to say, well, look what I did. Look how I contributed to it. And if it's not all of Christ, if it's not all of grace, then he doesn't get all the glory. Then he isn't as loving and as generous as we think he is. If he says, hey, there's still something you have to contribute, that means God is holding back. And this passage says he hasn't held anything back from us. He holds out a free gift that if we receive by grace, we are forgiven, we are accepted And here's the beautiful thing for us. We receive Christ's righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, that is our basis of our justification. It's not God infusing grace in us to make us righteous so that we can sort of stand acceptable before God. God gives us the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed. It's reckoned to us as if it were our own. And this is the good news. We don't have to earn that righteousness. It's a gift. It's Christ's given to us by nature of our faith and our union with him. And what this means is we can't lose it. We didn't earn it and we don't have to lose. We can't lose it. What this also means is salvation is assured because Christ's righteousness is always good enough. And so we always stand accepted because of him. And so we don't perform. We don't try to earn our acceptance. We don't try to reach some sort of standard. Christ already did that for us. It is for us to receive by faith. Now here's the rub. As I said earlier, human beings, wow, we like to earn our own keep. We like to bring something to the table. We like to think that we are part of the solution. We like to earn. We like to say, yeah, look what I did. Thanks for the help, but look what I did. Oh, the idea of free grace, the idea of a gift, the idea of, hey, you need to let go of not only your sin, but your performance and your self-righteousness and trying to earn it. Letting go of all of that, man, that hits our pride. And so this isn't just something we sort of walk into, remember, dead in our trespasses and sins. We need the Holy Spirit to come and awaken us and aliven us. And when he does that, we respond by faith and grab hold of what Christ has done. And so this is all a work. This is why the Reformation was adamant that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is all a work of Jesus.
And that is good news for those who believe. Because your salvation, your acceptance, your assurance are all secure in Jesus. And then finally, how we understand transformation. Yes, the Reformation taught that justification is by faith alone. But as John Calvin put it, this faith is never alone. Meaning, for those who have been saved by God, salvation produces something. Notice what Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our salvation produces, our, our salvation produces good works. Our good works do not produce our salvation. Let's get the order correct. When you've been brought into union with Christ, when you believe in Jesus, when he has forgiven you of your sins and cleansed you of your sins, he gives you new life. And that new life produces a change, a transformation. You begin to move away from sin and selfishness and greed and pride and lust and deception. And you move into life, love, serving, freedom, confessing sin, repenting, humility, being able to love others and be loved by others. It transforms you to walk in righteousness and godliness, patience, kindness, humility. And so the work of Christ isn't just this thing, oh, cool, we're, we're saved, and now I can just go on my way. No, it brings us into a relationship with God, and he, we are his workmanship. He's at work in our hearts. He's renovating. He's transforming us. Not to get us in this place so that we can be acceptable. It's we're accepted. We're his children, and he wants to make us more into the family resemblance. He loves us. And so he is at work on us, transforming us, and then he gives us good things to do. And so for us as Christians, we need to understand why we do good things. It's not to earn acceptance. So many of us, even if we're not Roman Catholic, we run around doing good. We read our Bibles, we pray, we serve, we do all of these things in order to sort of think, man, I want God to like me. And so we're still chasing after an acceptance that's already ours. And we wonder why we're frustrated in our faith. We wonder why we're stunted in our growth. It's because we're still trying to chase acceptance. But if we would just relax, <laughs> lean in, and live in the goodness of what God has given us in Christ, we're going to experience that growth and that transformation that God intends for us. Hear how the good doctor, Martin Luther, put it. I could not have faith in God, if I did not think he wanted to be favorable and kind to me, this in turn makes me feel kindly disposed toward him, and I am moved to trust him with all my heart and to look to him for all good things. Look here. This is how you must cultivate Christ in yourself. This is how you grow in your faith. Faith must spring up and flow from the blood and wounds and death of Christ. If you see in these that God so kindly disposed towards you that he even gives his own son for you, then your heart in turn must grow sweet and disposed towards God. What Luther is saying is we grow as we more fully fix our eyes on Jesus and the love that he has for us. Now let's follow the good doctor here and where we need to fix our eyes, not our circumstances. Not our performance. Christ. Christ crucified for us. Christ given for us. Christ raised for our justification. Christ given because God loves us. 
And so we look to Christ to see the love God has for us. And that in turn transforms us and conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus. And so church, the Reformation matters because it helps us understand how we grow. It helps us see that it's not about earning acceptance. It's about growing in the acceptance that we already have in Christ. And so we don't minimize holiness. We don't minimize righteousness, but we don't mix these things. We see them as a work of God in those who believe in Jesus. So in conclusion, and being transformed by the gospel of Jesus, how being free from guilt and shame, being freed from having to perform and find acceptance, this brings freedom and this brings hope. And this is a message that our world needs, our city needs. This is why the Reformation matters. This is why we stand in this tradition. This is why we celebrate what happened 500 years ago. Because that kind of freedom, that kind of hope, that kind of boldness, it's hard to come by. It's hard for all of us. But this is part of why we need each other. So we can help each other and grow in these things. So we can have this kind of freedom and this kind of hope. Listen how, to what Luther said to a struggling Christian. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Amen.